Welcome to Metro Connection. I'm Rebecca Shear, and our theme today is collecting. Now, the big story this week in terms of collecting was, of course, the vote counting that took place across the region and country, and the collecting of wits that followed for some of the vanquished candidates. Tonight, uh, we fell short of our campaign goal. This campaign did not end the way we had hoped. But I'm glad I did it. I felt that citizens deserved a choice. I had somebody to vote for and I liked my choice. That was Maryland gubernatorial candidate Anthony Brown, D.C. mayoral candidate David Catania, and his fellow D.C. mayoral hopeful Carol Schwartz. Three of the candidates defeated at the polls in the DMV this week. But with the elections now behind us, today we'll look at some other kinds of collecting. Like the story of a Baltimore woman who gathers and publishes the names of people she calls slumlords. I didn't make these houses look this way. And I, I think that, you know, you can't fix something that you won't acknowledge. We'll also check out a new exhibit of historic maps of our region. And we'll hear why, after nearly 170 years, the Smithsonian is launching its very first capital campaign. Donors can help us build new buildings, they can help us enhance buildings, they can help us offer educational offerings we couldn't offer, those kind of things. Speaking of money, our first story today is about fundraising of a different sort, crowdfunding. And the idea is basically that you're raising investment capital from large groups of individuals and primarily using the internet as a way to reach those people. Brendan Jenkins is co-founder of Fundrise, a pioneer in D.C.'s burgeoning crowdfunding scene. Fundrise focuses on investing in local real estate. So as opposed to raising capital from a handful of friends or family members that you already know, um, you're using the power of the internet to access a much larger group of people and hopefully being able to raise more capital in smaller amounts frequently than you would if you were having lunch meetings or going to see every single person face-to-face. Now, you've probably heard of donation-based crowdfunding. Groups like Kickstarter or Indiegogo. You know, where you donate money to a cause or a project and maybe you get some kind of reward or perk in return. But what Fundrise does... Is typically labeled as equity crowdfunding. Since you get actual equity in the company. With Fundrise, you get partial ownership of a building, even a percentage of the tenant's total income and a portion of the rent. Thing is, though, the Securities and Exchange Commission only opens equity crowdfunding to accredited investors. That is, folks with an annual income of $200,000 or a net worth of $1 million, not including their home. But when Fundrise hit the scene a few years back, it wanted to appeal to everybody. And we found pretty quickly that that was a challenge. Um, You know, we had to hire a lot of lawyers and spent over probably $100,000 to do our first offering. In the end, they found a relatively unused SEC exemption that would allow unaccredited investors in the community to join in. The SEC still hasn't announced rules for Title III, which would open up crowdfunding to unaccredited investors everywhere. So last month, D.C.'s Department of Insurance, Securities, and Banking forged ahead and created what's known as an intrastate exemption. As Associate Commissioner for Securities Theodore Miles explains, under the new District of Columbia-only securities offerings exemption... Any district resident is able to invest... Though there are limits. If your annual income is less than $100,000... You may only invest up to $10,000. If you make between $100,000 and $200,000... You may invest up to $25,000. And if you rake in more than $200,000... Which is the income test for accredited investors... You can invest in any amount. Oh, and as you may have guessed from the words District of Columbia only... It is only if 
uh, the business is based in the district, and all the investors have to be residents of the district. But I recently met a guy. I'm Johan Munisinger, CEO of Equity Eats. Who isn't so gung-ho about that last part. Equity Eats, which Soft launched in October, uses crowdfunding to start new bars, restaurants, bakeries, and other food businesses. And the problem is, being in D.C., you typically find that you have investors from Maryland and from Virginia who want to also invest in restaurants in this area. And um, since the legislation will be limited to specifically D.C., we see that as being problematic for raising, you know, the 500000 or $1 million that we really need to open the restaurant. So Munasinga and his colleagues are waiting for the SEC to allow for true crowdfunding. Their fingers are crossed for next year. Until then, they're only working with accredited investors. Which is actually not what we originally wanted. Equity Eats originally, the idea was, hey, we want 500 people in the local community to throw in 500 bucks, 1000 bucks, you know, a couple thousand dollars. We've had people come to us who are waiters, for example, and they say, look, I have $500 to invest. I have no idea what I would pick in the stock market. But if you gave me 25 restaurants, I could tell you which one I think is going to do well. And that's kind of the market we were, we're really going after. For now, Equity Eats is limiting each food concept to 100 accredited investors. The first four concepts on the website attracted $650,000 in the first week alone. A restaurant featuring seasonal and local ingredients, a burger and lobster joint, a seafood purveyor, and an old-world European-style boulangerie called Bluebird Bakery. Pastry chef Camilla Arango and her husband, fellow pastry chef Tom Wellings, plan to offer their croissant, panini, and other artisanal treats at 11th and Rhode Island Avenue Northwest this spring. We have kind of like a timeline of getting the funds that we need by December and then finishing the build out and then hopefully opening in um, May. Arango says giving local investors equity in Bluebird, along with a free coffee each time they stop by, meshes with the original vision for the bakery. We always knew that the community was going to be a big part of it. And it's not that easy finding people who want to invest a hundred, two hundred, three hundred thousand. But if you find several investors who really feel like the project is going to be part of the community, I think it makes things easier. Johan Munisinga says investors only get paid back when an eatery is profitable, which could mean a year or more. But when they do, it'll be a healthy return. Which we've structured and we expect will be about 20% a year. So we expect that our investments will have a, a higher success rate than the industry average. The reality is that, you know, about 59% of restaurants fail within the first three years. Of course, crowdfunding does have its challenges, especially when compared with traditional fundraising. As Fundrise's Brendan Jenkins points out, you have more investors to answer to, more first-time investors to educate, and then there's the time factor. People on the Internet are very used to kind of things happening fast. They want to see results very, very quickly, and real estate is a place where things move slowly. But he thinks it's all worth it, as he sees investors putting their money to work in all kinds of creative ways. Whether it's on Fundrise, a real estate project, you know, a restaurant, a small business, a startup company. And there's just a lot of exciting opportunities out there to be supporting or investing in things that you care about or things that you want to see happen. And that's part of the magic of crowdfunding, he says. Investors don't just get returns, they get involved, promoting a sense of community for the entire crowd. <laughs> we ask you, have you ever crowdfunded a project or concept? What inspired you to join in? Email us your story at metro at wamu.org. If you got the money, I've got the time, we'll go.
We'll turn now to a local institution that knows a whole lot about collecting, the Smithsonian. The man at the helm of the world's largest museum and research complex and its vast collections of everything from stuffed birds to spacesuits is Wayne Clough. But after six years of serving as the Smithsonian's secretary, he's stepping down at the end of the year to return to his home state of Georgia. Succeeding him will be the current president of Cornell University, David Scorton. In the meantime, the Smithsonian is embarking on something completely unprecedented in its 168-year history, a capital campaign that has all 30 of its advisory boards working together with a goal of raising $1.5 billion. Metro Connections' Jonathan Wilson met Wayne Clough inside the Smithsonian Castle on the National Mall to talk about his tenure and what he sees in the Smithsonian's future. First of all, tell us where we are. It's a pretty neat room that we're in, in the Smithsonian Castle. Not many people get to come in this room, but but where are we? This room we're in is called a parlor. And this used to be where the first secretary and his family lived. And so their living quarters were here. No other secretaries have ever lived here. I've spent a lot of time here, but I haven't lived here. But uh, it's really an amazing place. Now, the first secretary, you have to remember, this was the only building the Smithsonian had. And so they did a lot of tanning of hides and mounting of animals and things of that sort. So they complained about the smells that were emanating from downstairs and some of the creatures that, I guess, come along with the process. <laughs> so, But it's a beautiful, uh, beautiful room for us. And what we try to do is to display something from each of our museums in here. And when you walk in, there's, there's some awesome objects. Uh, you know, you've got Neil Armstrong's watch over here when he landed on the moon. Uh, you've got Michael Jordan's jersey over here on this side. And you've got some artwork that goes back thousands of years. I think it's easy to forget the scope of the collection here at the Smithsonian and all the stuff that you guys have. How many items, roughly, are we talking about? <laughs> well, but put this in perspective first because the collections don't stand alone from the museum. So we have 20 collecting units. And so it's not all museums. We have archive, libraries, and, and other things where we have uh, collections that are obtained. And I would put this in perspective. We talked about the first secretary. His philosophy was that the Smithsonian should create collections for scientific study. The Smithsonian at that time was primarily science. And we didn't get our first art museum until the about 1920 when the Freer Museum was built. So that was a long time between, you know, 1846 and, and 1920 before we got our first art museum. So here we are today, we have 19 museums, and yes, we have collections based of 138 million objects. Now, in addition, we have 165,000 cubic feet of archival materials. These are books and documents that, that are historic documents. That's a huge set of, of archival material. Now, beyond that, of course, we have a, the world's largest audio collection of folk music and, and all kinds of music. We have sheet music. We have 8,000 musical instruments. Everything at the Smithsonian typically comes in 1,000. So if you ask me how many baseball cards we have, 650,000. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you ask me how many bumblebees we have in our collections because we collect, you know, we study pollinators, 66,000 bumblebees. Talk about what the campaign money will be used for. I mean, obviously, there's so many different things that you guys do here. Going forward, you know, you're, you're handing this off to a successor. What are the goals that you would like to see focused on in the future? What is the biggest challenge or the biggest aim for the institution going forward? It's hard to get somebody to want to replace a pipe in a building, and that's where maintenance comes in. That's really the federal government's job. 
we don't charge admission. And I've, since I've been here, I've said I do not want to charge admission to these museums. I think it's magnificent when families can come and, and at least have something they can do for free. And, you know, and they can go from one museum to the other museum, and they don't have to stop and pay admission to do that. Uh, so I think the federal government comes in in that they have to, to backstop us on maintenance and you know, collections. Not many people want to support these big collection centers we have to have, but we need that, and the, and the people who staff those. But donors can help us build new buildings. They can help us enhance buildings. They can help us offer educational offerings we couldn't offer, those kind of things. And, and you know, really improve the vitality of the institution that you don't get from the basic uh, necessities that you have to do. I guess my last question, what words of advice do you have for your successor? Um, any uh, secrets to success or, you know, words of warning even? <laughs> <laughs> well, I think, you know, keep your sense of humor going. <laughs> I mean, the, the fact of the matter is you have a great responsibility because there are, are over 6,000 employees and over 6,000 vol- physical volunteers here. So you're representing those folks. And you're representing this long history of the institution. Uh, so you have to respect that every day when you're on the job. Uh, and it's demanding because you've got to raise your money privately. So you've got to be skilled at that. And David Scorton is skilled at that. Uh, but uh, enjoy. Enjoy the place. You know, a lot of people here who love the Smithsonian who will support you. Uh, people on the Hill, by and large, are very supportive of the Smithsonian. It's, it's a good thing. Uh, so I think uh, you can, he can count on a lot of support from uh, quarters he might not see right off the hand, right off the bat, but uh, you need a sense of humor. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much for talking to us. Thank I really you, appreciate it. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure. That was Wayne Clough, Secretary of the Smithsonian Institution, talking with Metro Connections' Jonathan Wilson. Under Clough's leadership, the Smithsonian has also started uploading three-dimensional scans of items in its collection to the web. We have a link to that brand new website on our website, metroconnection.org. Time for a break, but when we get back... It's going to be a complete transformation of what it, what it used to be. A hotel that once collected more than its share of dust gets a major revamp. That and more in a minute here on Metro Connection on WAMU 88.5. WAMU News coverage of labor and employment issues is made possible by your contributions and by Matthew Watson in memory of Marjorie Watson. And support for WAMU 88.5's coverage of the environment comes from the Wallace Genetic Foundation, dedicated to the promotion of farmland preservation, the reduction of environmental toxins, and the conservation of natural resources. I'm Rebecca Shear, and welcome back to Metro Connection. We're all about collecting this week, collecting artifacts, collecting money, or in the case of this next story, collecting dust. At least that's what it seemed like over at F Street and Virginia Avenue in Northwest D.C.'s Foggy Bottom neighborhood. On the corner there, you'll find this rather imposing four-and-a-half-story brick building that for years and years looked kind of derelict, kind of abandoned. But in truth, it was up and running as a hotel. Though perhaps not the most luxurious of hotels, if you consult a review site like, say, TripAdvisor. The most terrifying hotel we've ever stayed in. Calling the rooms drab? 
is a compliment. I would rather sleep in my car than go through that again. The worst experience of my life. Do not, under any circumstances, go to this place. To quote Monty Python, run away, run away. I walked in, saw my room, walked out, and went straight for a Marriott. I've spent many an evening chuckling, lying in bed, reading some of the reviews for the Alan Lee. Um, in fact, I've owned this hotel for 10 years and never told anybody I owned it for that very reason. Well, the secret's out of the bag now. This here is Jim Abdo. Of Abdo Development, I'm the president and CEO. And uh, where are we standing right now? We are standing in what was formerly the Allen Lee Hotel, which is being transformed into the Hotel Hive, H-I-V-E. As opposed to D-I-V-E, which many would say is what the Allen Lee Hotel clearly was before closing earlier this year. Abdo purchased the building back in 2004, but he held off on developing it, instead leasing it back to the Allen Lee operator. How much did you buy the building for 10 years ago? Several million. And how much is this development going to run you? Millions more. More more than I paid for the building. How about that? (laughs) The Hotel Hive will be D.C.'s very first pod hotel. Room rates will be far less than the most recent citywide average of $230 a night. We are hoping to deliver this for around $125 a night. I mean, our tagline is Hotel Hive. Buzz more, spend less. And as for room size, the 83 pods will be about half the D.C. average, topping out at 250 square feet. There's a lot of new um, thinking out there that less is more. And that people really want to enjoy their time more out in the city to feel the buzz of the city, as a, pardon me for all the taglines, as opposed to sitting in your hotel room all the time. The Hotel Hive will also feature full building Wi-Fi, a build-your-own pizza restaurant, cocktail and coffee bar, two-story outdoor patio, and a rooftop lounge. And frankly, updating the facade and, and getting all this peeling paint off the building and making it visually pleasing uh, will be really nice as well. But speaking of that dated facade, that peeling paint, you have to understand 2224 F Street Northwest wasn't always like this. It began as an apartment building called the Lou Ellen. One last source I'll point out to you here, uh, are, aside from these mapping sources, we have some interesting sort of more demographic sources. Uh, and one of these is uh, just a city directory, essentially uh, a phone book before phone books. A few blocks north of 2224 in George Washington University's Special Collections Reading Room, urban history Professor Chris Klemek is flipping through archival materials that shed light on the building's history, like real estate atlases, census data, and this business and residential directory dating back to 1916. So, you know, sort of in the World War uh, I era, and if we look up that apartment building that we said had just been built shortly after the turn of the century called the Llewellyn, what's interesting here is we can see that it has about a dozen occupants and we have their names listed and we can cross-reference their names. For example, we can take William Roche here and we can look him up by name and discover that William Roche is a horseshoer. Similarly, uh, Kath Doyle is a clerk at the Bureau of Lighthouses. Indeed, by World War I, the Llewellyn Apartments hosted a cross-section of lower-middle-class Washingtonians and low-level government workers, as it did a generation later, as evidenced by the 1940 census. In 1940, we still have a cabinet maker, chauffeurs. This person says that they are a pharmacist's mate in the United States Navy, which doesn't make too much sense unless you realize the United States Naval Hospital is two blocks away. Another thing about these residents of the Llewellyn on F Street's south side, 
they all shared something rather particular. When we look at the 1940 census, something comes out uh, about this corner of Foggy Bottom is it is very sharply segregated by race. So if you look at the column for color or race. The entire south side of F Street is white, exclusively white. And the entire north side of F Street? Is black, exclusively black. And that's a similar division between 22nd and 23rd Street. 22nd, all white, 23rd, exclusively African American. So this site is interesting and has been throughout the history uh, because of the way it kind of straddles a lot of different uh, dynamics, and that that includes the racial succession. The neighborhood changed drastically after World War II, when urban renewal brought projects like the Virginia Avenue underpass, the Columbia Apartments, and the World Health Organization to this corner of Foggy Bottom. White-collar workers swept in to rehab and take over many black working-class row houses. The houses on F Street's north side were replaced by George Washington University facilities, like residence halls and a sports arena. The Llewellyn Apartments transformed, too, as they were converted to, yes, the Allen Lee Hotel. And though many guests decried the Allen Lee for its conditions before it closed this year, for a number of Washingtonians, it was actually a refuge. As Jim Abdo explains, under the former manager, the hotel had a contract with the D.C. Superior Court's Crime Victims Compensation Program. They outsource a lot of their accommodations to hotels. And clearly what the district was doing was trying to find budget-priced hotel opportunities for crime victims. And the Allen Lee was one of the locations that they were using on a fairly regular basis. Crime victims receive a stipend for hotel stays. The Hotel Hive, Abdo says, will continue to accept any paying customer, but... It's going to be a complete transformation of what it used to be. Not that it'll be totally unrecognizable. Abdo Development collaborated with the Office of Fine Arts, the Architect of the Capitol, and the National Trust for Historic Preservation to maintain the integrity of the more-than-century-year-old building, while at the same time updating its look and adding safety measures like fire-rated stairs and building-wide sprinklers. We are huge advocates of adaptive reuse. We don't like to necessarily tear buildings down uh, that are intact. We like to save them and give them new life. And he's confident 2224 F Street's new life as the Hotel Hive will be better than ever, with guests from around the world swarming in to see what all the buzz is about. And now, from one old rundown building to a whole collection of them, Baltimore resident Carol Ott has become a bit of a local legend for her website, Baltimore Slumlord Watch. What she does is head to vacant, rundown properties in the city, catalog them, and post them on the web, along with the name of the property owners. As Hans Anderson tells us, Ott's goal is for landowners to take responsibility for these houses and clean them up. Carol Ott is an urban wanderer. She buys a transit pass in the morning and hops on whatever bus comes next. Sometimes I have a specific place to go to, but a lot of times I'll just get off and walk around and see what's there. Sometimes there's a lot, sometimes there's nothing. Today we're walking around the Penn North neighborhood. It's in West Baltimore. We walk up Pennsylvania Avenue, turn a corner, and find our first vacant. So, so this door belongs to that house. 
right? It's in a series of four row homes, two of which have plywood over the windows. The other two are clearly lived in. Ott takes a picture of one of the boarded up houses and tries to figure out which door belongs to the abandoned property. That was really confusing for a minute. Once she finds the address, she emails it to herself along with the picture. Both will end up on Baltimore's Slumlord Watch, along with the name of the property owner, local elected officials, and a brief history of the house, if Ott can find the records. But I think, I mean, I've been interested in building and construction, you know, ever since I was little. Looking at how things are put together is sort of this in reverse, because now I get to see how they come apart. Ott used to work at an architecture firm, but now runs an advocacy organization called Housing Policy Watch, which grew out of Slumlord Watch. She became iconic in the city for taking action on the very visible problem of vacant houses. It's all just very normal, but yet not. We're sitting on the front stoop of a abandoned, run-down, vacant house in the middle of what's obviously a very lived-in, very cared-for block. I mean, you don't even really see any trash. Ott just doesn't quite get how this happened. You see cars and you see people and you see curtains in the windows and... But yet we're sitting on the stoop of this one house that for whatever reason, somebody walked away from it and left it to its own devices. She started Baltimore Slumlord Watch in 2009 when a grocery store went out of business in her neighborhood and the building was left vacant. Up voiced her concerns, but nothing was done as the property attracted trash and vagrancy. And the owner of the shopping center was letting it fall into disrepair. And so I, I took pictures of it posted the ownership information. And it went from there. After a little pushback from the property owner, the lot was cleaned and new tenants moved in. Soon, Ott started taking pictures in other neighborhoods. And almost six years later, she's still scouting for vacants. Over the past several decades, we had lots of white flight. The city's population may have stabilized, but we still have black middle-class flight that also translates to institutional flight by churches and organizations. My name in Finnish is Antero Pietila. Pietila is a former reporter for the Baltimore Sun. He also wrote Not in My Neighborhood, How Bigotry Shaped a Great American City. It's a book about housing in Baltimore. He's also, as you might guess, from Finland. This city was designed to be a city of million people, which it briefly may have reached that that, uh, number of residents during World War II. Today, the population is 622,000. It's according to the last census. Pietola says there just isn't enough demand for housing in Baltimore, especially on streets like Pennsylvania Avenue, which is where Ott and I are walking right now. You know, I mean, listen, I have no grand illusion of being able to fix this by myself. I mean, this, this problem is probably even 10 times bigger than I now think it is. But I think when you live in a place, you have a certain amount of obligation to make it somewhat better than it is now. Ott views herself as a catalyst for action in the city, and many of the houses she photographs are fixed up or sold. But many of them remain a part of Baltimore's landscape, 
often with caved-in roofs or crumbling walls. Her work doesn't make her many friends either. Some have told her. You know, I googled the neighborhood and the only images that came up were yours and, you know, you, you're making the city look bad. And, like, I didn't make these houses look this way. I don't own them. I think that, you know, you can't fix something that you won't acknowledge. Baltimore officials estimate there are 16,000 vacant homes in the city. Other estimates go much higher. Pietala believes there are around 27,000, but is smart enough to also say, we'll never know. Whatever the number, there's a lot left to be done, according to Carol Ott. I'm Hans Anderson. Want to see the houses Carol Ott photographed the day she walked through Baltimore with Hans? We have them on our website, metroconnection.org. time to knock on a few doors with our ongoing journey around the region. This week on Door to Door, we'll visit the Northbrook Estates area of Wheaton, Maryland, and the Barnaby Woods neighborhood of Northwest D.C. My name is Carolyn Cook. I live in Barnaby Woods. My parents moved in 1967 to Barnaby Woods, and so I was born in the house that I live in now. We're in the northwest corner of the district, and the neighborhood was actually established by Edward Carr in the 1930s. His hope was to create this 23-acre tract of land that would enable city dwellers or business persons to come out to a country-like setting, still within the district, but to enjoy the peaceful surroundings. I think our most impressive landmark is the Pinehurst Tributary. It's a woods that has always been a really friendly place to visit, whether you're a kid or an adult. It's really a wonderful place to have been brought up and still be continuing to grow even in adulthood. My name is Bill Walker. I live in an area of Wheaton called Northbrook Estates. It's uh, just a few minutes north of downtown Silver Spring, and I've lived here for five years. Northbrook Estates is near the central business district of Wheaton, uh, but it's a quiet little bedroom community between University, Dennis Avenue, and Georgia Avenue on the far eastern side. We're bordered by Sligo Creek. In our neighborhood, there is a variety of residents. Uh, We do have people of all ages. In fact, my neighbor, a couple of houses down, is one of the original residents on this street. She's been here since 1960. Northbrook Estates is a great place to live because I can tell that uh, people in this community care about where they live. And our our neighbors, you you may see right now signs in in their yards uh, opposing a cell phone tower um, right over on Dennis Avenue that has environmental impacts. So it's nice to see that even quiet bedroom communities can come together over issues that really impact the community broadly. We heard from Carolyn Cook in Barnaby Woods and Bill Walker in Northbrook Estates. If you think your neighborhood should be part of Door to Door, let us know. You can reach us at metro at wamu.org or send us a tweet. Our handle is at WAMU Metro. After the break... 
We'll visit a museum dedicated to the medicines of yore. Essentially, there were no rules as to what you could put in any of the medicines. So it was a lot of herbs which were not very good tasting. So you would want to put things like cinnamon or other flavors in there as well as alcohol. That's just ahead on Metro Connection here on WAMU 88.5. Welcome back to Metro Connection. I'm Rebecca Shear, and today we're doing some collecting. Collecting of cash, collecting of dust, and in the case of this next segment, collecting of curiosities. Earlier in the hour, we met the man who heads Washington's ultimate collection of curiosities, the Smithsonian Institution. And it's to one particular Smithsonian museum that we'll head now. The Stabler Leadbeater Apothecary Museum in Old Town, Alexandria, is a fully preserved 19th century pharmacy, replete with all the quirky old drugs and implements you'd expect from back then. You'll find drawers of Job's tears, bins of unicorn root, and bottles of something called meat juice. Lauren Ober talked with museum curator Kelly Stapp. For those of us who were born after the 1930s, what is an apothecary? An apothecary is essentially a doctor and pharmacist all rolled into one. So he would dispense medicines just like a drugstore we think of today. Describe for us what this looks like in here. In the 1850s, the uh, son of the original founder decided he would spruce things up a bit. So it looks a little bit gingerbready house inside. And then you also put in some really fun counters that have beveled glass to really show off your fun products like hair tonics and perfumes. But then you also have our label under glass bottles, which contained all of the raw ingredients that you would use in all of your medicines. So they have fun colors. Some are blue, some are yellow, some have actual bits of bark in them and things like that, but they were meant to show off. So they're done in nice foil glass labels. There are tons of these glass bottles. A lot of these have stuff in them still, which creeps me out a little bit. So are these the real things that the apothecary would use? They are. This is the same materials. That's one of the great things about our collection is that we have the original materials in them that they would have used in the 1850s. You ever opened any of these up and smelled them? No. Why I can, not? I can only imagine how terrible they would smell. Really? You've never you've never been tempted just to put your face in there and just just take a whiff? We have uh, boxes of mostly uh, root-type material upstairs. Uh, one of them is a skunk cabbage root, and it smells pretty terrible. I can only imagine it probably smells slightly less terrible than it smelled 100 years ago, but pretty pretty awful smelling. So, Or more terrible if it's been sitting around for 100 years. One, one can only guess how terrible it is. So with all of these medicines, like how would they prepare them. So you would come in and describe what you needed and the pharmacist or apothecary would, you know, pull out their raw ingredients and you would uh, use a mortar and pestle a lot of times if you had especially um, like roots or things that needed to be ground up that weren't already in a liquid form. And so you would just take it and you would just just smash it down just like you do for, you know, cooking and things like that today. Yeah, so they would just they would get at it in there and grind it up. And that, then... That's it. And then you could put it in your um, whatever you're using with. So if you're making it into a pill form, you can put a little bit of sugar or chocolate around it. You can use a pill roller, which we have several of, and you could roll it out into long pieces and then little smaller bits and send it off with the customer. Should we go have a look-see upstairs? Let's go upstairs because you will probably find 
a few things that you uh, will have never seen before. We usually use it as our Harry Potter room, so a lot of kids get very excited because it kind of looks like the apothecary from Harry Potter. Oh, this is something. So we have what is essentially walls on each side and down the middle of raw ingredients in tins and also in drawers um, that have the ingredients pasted, you know, painted on the front. Do any of these drawers have stuff still in them? Most of the drawers actually still have things in them. We have wild carrot tops, which are always really fun. Uh, Job's Tears, which are just basically small berries. A lot of times you would give them to kids to teeth on. What are some of your favorite like areas or, or things, not maybe your most favorite, but some of your favorites? So one of the things that is kind of among one of my favorites is what's called the Valentine's Meat Juice. This gentleman named Man Valentine had a very sickly wife. And so he invented something that would press raw meat and you would take the juice from that and you would combine it with you know, a few other things and serve it to people who were probably very anemic and kind of sickly and they got better. Why couldn't they just eat meat? That is a good question. I don't have the answer for that, but it, it took off. Uh, we have beef, wine, and iron. That that was also very popular. If you're pressing out a slab of meat for the juice, you could just eat the meat, I guess. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe they're just thinning it out. It's a little bit cheaper. Um, again, yeah, maybe okay. it's just one of the things that takes off. Could you imagine in 200 years a preserved CVS as a museum? <laughs> Not at all. Not in the least. That was Callie Stapp, curator of the Stabler Leadbeater Apothecary Museum, talking with Metro Connections' Lauren Ober. turn now from old-timey medicine to a rather old-timey, yet in a way timeless, way of communicating. Postcards. Back in the early 1900s, a certain photographer created a whole lot of postcards of early 20th century D.C., and his work is now being tracked down and collected by archivists such as local librarian Jerry McCoy. Lauren Lando sat down with McCoy to look through and discuss his prized collection. If you want to get a sense of what D.C. was like a hundred years ago, you might consider starting on the hushed third floor of the Martin Luther King Jr. Memorial Library in Chinatown. What you're here to see can be found in two boxes tucked away on a desk in a corner. They're filled with postcards, hundreds of them, all taken by a man named Willard R. Ross. Mr. Ross was a real photo postcard photographer. That's Jerry McCoy, a special collections librarian for the D.C. Public Library. The box on the left is McCoy's. The box on the right belongs to the Washingtoniana collection. And he worked here in Washington from about 1901 up until 1930, photographing what I've long termed as hometown D.C. views. That phrase, hometown D.C., means Ross didn't capture the scenes and subjects you might expect of a D.C. postcard photographer. He really wasn't interested in the monumental federal D.C. typical postcard views of the White House and the Capitol building. He uh, emphasized the, the corner stores, the churches, the neighborhoods, street scenes, civic events, parades. McCoy first got turned on to postcard collecting or delteology about 30 years ago. 
He owns some 150 Ross postcards, which he's currently digitizing, along with any others he can find, and adding to the library's DigDC database. Between his collection and those of Washingtoniana, as well as items from the Historical Society of Washington, D.C., and a private local collector, McCoy estimates the online archive will include just shy of a thousand images. Postcards have long been ignored by historians and academics, but sometimes, well many times, the images that were captured and put on postcards are sometimes the only image of something that was ever taken. And if it weren't for that postcard that has that image on it, no one would ever know what something looked like at some point in our history. Why do you think that they've been largely ignored by you know, historians? Um, simply because of the ephemeral quality of a postcard. You know, it's something you write a message on, slap a stamp on it, send to somebody. They read the message. They might hold on to it for a little while, and then they throw it away. Thankfully, he says, some people did feel their mementos were worth saving, which is great news for collectors. These postcards are particularly rare due to the nature of how they were made. These are gelatin silver photographs that were printed on postcard paper that had an imprinted postcard back, you know, with a little square to put the stamp on it and the dividing line for the the message on one side, the address on the other. So Ross would buy a box of this paper and go out to take his photographs, which he'd manually print one at a time. That means these items aren't just rare. They're also pretty valuable. When McCoy first started buying them, a Ross postcard cost about 10 bucks. Now multiply that by 10, and that's pretty much the standard cost of around $100 for a really good image that's nice and sharp, clear, has an interesting scene going on in it, and there's a lot of them still out there. I know that. Part of the fun of these postcards is figuring out the backstory. Once you get the item, you just don't put it in a box and forget about it, or at least most collectors don't like to do that. You then start researching the image. McCoy says he wants to know what was happening in the photograph. If there are buildings, when were they built and how long did they last? He says it helps that Ross often captioned his photographs with identifying information, such as the date the photo was taken. Sometimes he even wrote down the addresses of buildings. So I can put the coordinates right into our database and then eventually we will have a map of the entire city with little pins showing the locations of every single Willard R. Ross photograph that was taken, and you'll be able to just click on it, and that image will open up. And this is something I have dreamt about for 30 years, before I even knew what a personal computer was. A total history geek, McCoy says he finds the stories of average people to be far more interesting than those of the illustrious characters who've passed through American history. Flipping through these rare postcards transports him to another time in a familiar place. It's the closest I'll ever get to being able to purchase that time machine, which no one yet has has said that they've invented. And these postcard images really are time machines. McCoy says having all the Ross images available online will be a great resource, and he's nearly done. There's still some metadata entry to do, but once everything is digitized and keyword searchable, he'll move on to his next project putting all that information into a good old-fashioned paper book. I'm Lauren Landau. Curious about how Washington looked through early 20th century eyes? We have photos and a link to that Dig DC database on our website, metroconnection.org. Time now for On the Coast. 
Our ongoing series from Brian Russo as he brings us the latest from coastal Delaware and the eastern shores of Maryland and Virginia. And today, Brian takes us to Onancock, Virginia, and a historic home known as Car Place. Car Place was built in 1799. These days, it's home to the eastern shore of Virginia Historical Society, which is presenting an exhibit of the largest and rarest collection of maps ever to come to the eastern shore. Brian swung by to talk with art dealer Graham Arader, who lent the maps to Car Place. Maps that show new information for the first time in a significant way are the most desirable maps. They're the ones that go for the most money. There are five key maps in Virginia history that are the mother maps, the chief prototype maps, the chief type maps of the Chesapeake Bay and Virginia that really are the ones the collector want, the collectors want. Here's the John White done in 1590. Uh, the price on that is 48,000. Then comes next is Captain John Smith map uh, that's published in 1612 in London. Price on that is $130,000. Then the next map after that is the um, Augustine Herman map. We do not have that map, but we have maps that copied that Augustine Herman map of 1673. The map after that is the Fryan Jefferson map Mm -hmm. done by Thomas Jefferson's father, published in 1751. Um, We have the one that was used by the French to determine naval strategy for the uh, uh, capturing Cornwallis at Yorktown. So that's 750000 but we have a regular Fry and Jefferson map, just like the one that hangs in Independence Hall, that's 35000 mm-hmm. Then lastly, we have Thomas Hutchins' map that shows expansion to the west, western Virginia. So those are the five key maps in American history that show vast new information for the very first time. Maps that copy that that have some improvements would be the second level down. And they would be a third or a fourth or a fifth the price. Tell me a little bit about how, because obviously when when you hear handcrafted maps, obviously, you know, this wasn't going through a drafting table. Tell me the the length of time and and just sort of the art behind creating a map in this time period. Brilliant question. So the... uh, the map maker is the person that went out into the field, like Captain John Smith, and paddled around the Chesapeake Bay for a year. Uh, he then goes back to London, transfers the information onto a copper plate with the help of engravers. That takes about six months. Then the book has to get published, uh, and then it gets distributed. So from the time it's an idea in someone's head to the time it finally gets published can be as long as three years. Right. So it takes a long time. And, and, of course, with these early maps... You know, they didn't really know... Some of these places were sort of uncharted territory. They didn't really know where they were going. What can these maps tell us about that time period? And and what can we learn now, looking back at these maps? You can see certainly the progression of knowledge about the Chesapeake Bay. So with White, it's practically nothing. With Smith, it's a vast improvement over 21 years. With... um, Fry and Jefferson, it's a tremendous improvement upwards. So it really, every year, every new, new map that comes out is a little bit better. Right. But these five maps are the big jumps. Earlier, I, I saw you, people were bringing in things of theirs, the, uh, you know, valuables and antiques, and you were appraising them. When you look at those things everywhere that you go in the world, what are the things that you're looking for? that define authenticity or value. So I'm looking for the oxidation of the iron in the ink, ferrous oxide. I'm looking for the oxidation of the copper in the green, cuprous oxide. I'm looking for aging to the paper, the cellulose fiber. 
I'm looking for a little bit of discoloration around the edges as the pieces age, they discolor and get a little dark around the edges. I'm looking for a fold down the center from where it was in an atlas. I'm looking for all the signs of aging that exist on a map. I'm looking for a few stains, a little bit of discoloration, maybe uh, a small tear, anything that really speaks to the fact that this was something that really existed for as long as 400 years. I know it's hard to maybe point out one map that is, is the one, but I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you, is there any map in this collection that just you know, takes your breath away, so to speak? Well, certainly um, Lord Thomas Fairfax's original manuscripts of the Potomac River used to delineate his northern boundary of his 5,200,000 acre inheritance called the Northern Neck is a national treasure that should end up uh, in a major collection at the Library of Congress or the University of Virginia or some institution. These should not be in private hands. They are great national icons of the development of Virginia and America. That was art dealer Graham Arader talking with WAMU coastal reporter Brian Russo. The Car Place exhibit of historic maps will be up through November 14th. We have details on our website, metroconnection.org. That's Metro Connection for this week. We heard from WAMU's Jonathan Wilson, Lauren Ober, Lauren Landau, and Brian Russo. And we wish a warm Metro Connection welcome to our newest reporter, Hans Anderson. WAMU's managing editor of news is Memo Lyons. Metro Connection's managing producer is Tara Boyle. Lauren Landau is our editorial assistant. Our intern is Julie Alderman. John Hines and Kristen Sorensen produced this week's Door to Door. Thanks, as always, to the WAMU engineering and digital media teams for their help with production and the Metro Connection website. Our theme song, Every Little Bit Hurts, and our door-to-door theme, No Girl, are from the album It Was Easy by Title Tracks and used with permission of the Ernest Jennings Record Company. If you missed part of today's show, head to our website, metroconnection.org, and click This Week on Metro Connection. Or you can subscribe to our podcast. We're also on iTunes, Stitcher, and the NPR News app. We hope you can join us next week when we'll dive into D.C.'s booming tech scene. We'll explore the city's future tech corridor and learn why some women say when it comes to female techies, Washington is better than Silicon Valley. Plus, we'll look at the growing field of cyber security. At any given day, we have several hundred vacancies. Not only is it a challenge to fill the vacant positions, the government is always looking for talent as well. I'm Rebecca Shear, and thanks for listening to Metro Connection, a production of WAMU 88.5 News.